Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Georgia. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. When people talk about 42-year-old Lori Arrowood, they talk about her smile that could break any bad mood you were in. They talk about the love she had for her daughters, and they talk about the love she had for animals, more specifically, horses. If she wasn't doing something with her daughter, you could probably find her out riding her horse or teaching someone else how to ride theirs. By 2010, one of her daughters had grown up and moved out, but her 17-year-old daughter Jessica still lived with her and was on her way to adulthood. Lori had been down the marriage route before and it didn't work out, but in 2009, a soldier out of Fort Stewart named Nathan Arrowwood, who was 20 years her junior, fell out of the sky and swept her off of her feet. And before long, they were married. Regardless of their age difference, the connection between them was impossible to ignore. When they were together, it was simple. Their happiness was effortless. Nathan adored and respected his new wife, Lori, and Lori felt like Nathan hung the moon. And while their marriage was everything either of them could have dreamed of, it was about to get hard. Nathan was being deployed to Iraq. Lori was devastated at the thought of spending a single night away from Nathan, and Nathan felt the same. But they knew this was a possibility, and they did their best to make the most of the time they had left. They held a deployment party where friends and family could say their goodbyes to Nathan and wish him luck, and to make sure he knew he was loved. They even got a puppy, something that Lori could care for and love on while he was overseas. The days prior to his deployment passed like minutes, and by July, he was off. Lori was devastated. This was the first time they'd been apart since they met. He wasn't able to get in contact as often as either of them had hoped for, and when he could, it wasn't usually at a normal time in the States. But that didn't stop Lori from waiting by the phone or the computer to see if she heard that familiar ding of Facebook or her phone ringing. Lori would often forego sleep, either because she was worried and missing her husband, or because she was making sure that any time he was able to make it to a computer or a phone, she was there and she was going to take advantage of every second of it. Lori went to Facebook often about how hard this deployment was on her, posting things like, waiting to hear from him. Finally heard from my amazing husband. I feel so much better now. I love him. 
Missing my wonderful husband so much and wishing my amazing husband was here to cuddle with me on this rainy night. Every day of Nathan's deployment was hard, but their love was patient and consistent. Saturday, September 25th, 2010, two months into Nathan's deployment, started like any other day. Lori's 17-year-old daughter headed off to work, and Lori was having a friend come over around lunchtime to do some electrical work. According to the Coastal Source, he was just doing some simple work, changing one of their electrical outlets into a three-prong outlet. At 1.20 p.m., she spoke to a friend on the phone about her friend possibly loaning her some money, and the friend didn't think twice. Anytime anyone needed anything, Lori was the first person there to help, and if Lori was the one who needed help this time, her friend didn't have to think twice. She told her that she could come right over, and according to the outlet, 10 minutes later, she was knocking on Lori's door so they could head over to the bank. But Lori didn't answer which seemed odd. They'd just made these plans 10 minutes ago. Maybe she was in the bathroom vacuuming something that was loud, so Lori's friend called her, and Lori answered, but something was off. The coastal source said her friend asked Lori if she had been crying. She didn't sound like herself, but Lori told her that she hadn't been, she was just in pain, and that she was going to hop in the bath. She told her friend to go run some errands and come back later. The whole thing was strange, but not too strange. Lori had gotten surgery a few months earlier, and according to her Facebook posts, it seemed like whatever was going on was pretty painful. So Lori having continued pain didn't seem out of the realm of possibilities. However, that phone call was the last time anyone ever heard from her. Five hours later, Lori's daughter Jessica got home from work to find two of the doors to the house unlocked, with their new puppy running around. The Coastal Source reports that according to Jessica, this would never happen. Lori would never leave the doors unlocked and the puppy was always contained when she wasn't there. Jessica waited and waited for her mother to come home that night, but she never did. And by Sunday morning, the Liberty County Sheriff's Department declared 42-year-old Lori Arrowood a missing person. They described her as 5'3 with brown auburn hair and that she might be wearing blue jeans, brown boots, and a white belt. It should also be noted that her purse and cell phone were missing as well, but all of her vehicles were still parked at the house and her keys had been left behind. If someone had broken in and taken her, they probably wouldn't let her take her purse or her phone with her, but if you think about it in another way, it kind of makes sense. If they wanted to rob her, they might take her purse instead of rifling through it just to take her money. And it's pretty common to have your phone in your pocket, so her phone being missing isn't too strange either. What is strange is that her keys were left at the house. If she willingly left and intended on returning, you'd assume she'd want to lock the doors behind her and be able to unlock them when she got back. And because we're covering all bases here, we have to consider whether or not she left on foot and just didn't feel like locking the doors. Lori was living in a rented trailer in an incredibly rural area that was densely wooded. This wasn't the place you'd trick-or-treat in. You'd be walking miles for a few pieces of candy. There was nothing around her. No gas stations, no corner markets. You'd have to commit to a drive if you wanted to go anywhere. And if she had, she would have been seen. Everyone knows everyone around there. A lot of people there share the same repeated last names, and there are even some street names matching those last names. It was that kind of small town. 
In the end, it seemed like there were only two plausible possibilities. She left on her own, on foot, which seemed incredibly unlikely because she wouldn't leave her daughter, puppy, and horse behind, or someone picked her up from the house. And if someone did, everyone was pretty concerned, because if they had, she left behind the only way to secure her house or get back into it. Lori's information was blasted out throughout the entire community. And with this small-town vibe of the county, coupled with the horse community and the military community, there was no shortage of people talking about Lori's disappearance and no shortage of people ready to drop everything to find her. Right off the bat, Lori's husband Nathan was contacted overseas and notified that his wife was missing, and they started the process to fly him back home. This surprised a lot of people, because she hadn't even been missing for 48 hours at this point. I spoke with a gunnery sergeant in the Marines and asked whether or not this is standard practice, and he said no, unless the police knew more than the public did and they had reason to believe that something really bad had happened. The military community caught on to this, and their concern for Lori was at an all-time high. They only knew what the police had put out there, but they knew flying someone back from a deployment was a huge undertaking and not one that the military took lightly. That day, WSAV reported that 50 members of this small community, along with the fire department, geared up and headed out to search for Lori. There was a lot of heavily wooded ground to cover, and it wouldn't be easy, but they did not care at all. They were going to stop at nothing until they found her. They searched relentlessly until the sun went down and the search was called off for the night, but they all planned to be back out there as soon as the sun came up, ready to search again the next morning. Come Monday morning, through rain and everything else the weather could throw at them, WSAV reports a command post was set up at Lori's house where her daughters were staying. Her oldest daughter had flown in to help. Volunteers from law enforcement, her close friends, the community, her husband's unit, and even the Georgia search and rescue team showed up to do a ground search, according to WTOC. They had hoped to have a helicopter search from above, but the rain was preventing it. The outlet reports that throughout the day Monday, they covered 30 acres and didn't find a single sign of Lori anywhere. But again, they were not going to stop. Come Tuesday the 28th, the search continued, and at this time, WSAV reports that nearly 200 people showed up to help. They searched, and they searched, and they searched until they covered 200 acres, and it was clear that Lori wasn't there, so the Liberty County Sheriff's Department called off the search. That didn't mean that they weren't still actively investigating her disappearance, but the next search they would be doing was going to be based off of any new evidence they found. Everyone's balloons were a little deflated at this point. Being able to help in the search gave people some hope that they were doing something to find her. But without the search, it felt more hopeless, like a waiting game. However, it wouldn't take long for something peculiar to happen. Late Tuesday night, around 9 p.m., people started to notice a heavy law enforcement presence at Lori's house, but it wasn't Liberty County Sheriff's vehicles. According to a report by WTOC 
and WSAV, it was the GBI, and they had brought their crime scene unit with them. And the GBI weren't looking around Lori's house, they were looking inside of it. This seemed so strange. Why was the state involved? And what happened between earlier when they were doing a ground search of the woods and now where the GBI was inside Lori's house where her daughters had been staying just in case she came home? Not only did it seem odd that the state was now investigating and the fact that the crime scene unit was inside of the house that her daughters had been living in for days, but the timing was weird. The GBI? Out at 9 p.m.? That's a really late and really specific time to be there. It didn't feel like this was any kind of routine follow-up. It seemed like they were on a mission and a long one at that. They were there until the early morning hours of Wednesday. And if you thought Tuesday was strange, Wednesday was about to be on another level. Out of nowhere, the GBI announced that an arrest had been made. Not that Lori had been found, no. That an arrest had been made in connection to Lori's murder. Savannah now reports that a man named Kenny Lumpkin had been arrested and charged with malice murder, aggravated assault, and kidnapping with bodily injury. Not only was Kenny the husband of Lori's best friend, he had participated in the search for Lori. According to public records, it looks like his wife, Shelly, who again was Lori's best friend, had filed a protective order against Kenny back in 1999 but they were high school sweethearts and remained married. Kenny was also a corrections officer with the Liberty County Sheriff's Office, and he had been the one doing that electrical work for Lori the day she went missing. Kenny had been taken into custody Tuesday night, and he must have said some off-the-wall shit because that explains the GBI being at her house for hours late the night before. In his mugshot, he had the creepiest little smug grin on his face. No one, and I mean no one, could believe this. A neighbor told WSAV that she was shocked because she'd known the Lumpkin family well, and they'd all been friends for a while. Just hours after Kenny was charged with Lori's murder, the body of a woman was found in the woods just a handful of miles from Lori's house, and everyone was pretty sure it was her. But there was also a possibility that it was someone else. You see, a woman named Deborah Gail Moody, she went by Gail, had gone missing on December 4th of 2007, three years prior to Lori going missing, and they looked eerily similar to one another. And in what seemed like a really strange coincidence, a vigil had actually been held for Gail on the 24th, the night before Lori went missing. If this wasn't Lori, maybe it was Gail, but I mean, this body had been found right after Kenny had been arrested for Lori's murder, so it had to be her, right? I mean, that would either be a wild coincidence or would it? As it turns out, Gail's mom told WTOC that Gail's ex-husband was the cousin of Kenny's wife, and Kenny's wife was also Lori's best friend. Lori also knew Gail. Gail had spent a significant amount of time around Kenny and had even stayed at his house before. In fact, they even lived next door to one another. Kenny's friends list was filled with people who had common last names with both Gail 
and Lori's family. And he even had Facebook friends who worked at the same place Gail once worked at. With all of these similarities, the town started talking, and they weren't whispers. This town was roaring with what the fucks. And a rumor spread that they'd actually found two bodies, not just one. No one knew what to believe anymore, so they did the only thing they could, which was wait for an ID on the woman found in the woods. And they didn't have to wait long. By that evening, it was confirmed that the body, only one body, found in the woods was Lori's. Lori's husband, Nathan, wasn't able to make it home until after they had found his wife's body. Everyone was devastated, and I mean everyone, including the family of Gail, who for years had wondered what had happened to their daughter and now felt like they might know. They knew Kenny, and now they knew what he was capable of. And with how he was able to murder and dispose of Lori's body so quickly without seeming to leave anything behind, no one believed that this was the first time he'd done it. Had Gail's vigil the night before set him off? Kenny's wife, Shelly, was in a volcanic tornado trying to figure out what her life was. Her husband had just been charged with killing her best friend, and she had a teenage son to raise who was dealing with that same reality. On October 3rd, Shelly did the only thing she could think of to talk to Lori. She posted on her Facebook page. She said, Lori, as you look down on us from heaven, just know that you were my best friend. I'm really going to miss you. I don't understand any of this. I love you. The police knew they had their man when it came to Lori, and according to WTOC, were pretty sure that they had their man when it came to Gail. The outlet reports that based on new evidence, they have reason to believe that Lori and Gail's cases were connected. So they started a new search, but this time it was for Gail. On October 4th, Lori's husband Nathan spoke out for the first time in an extremely candid interview with WTOC. He told the station that he felt completely helpless when he got the phone call that his wife was missing. And contrary to everyone else, he immediately suspected Kenny. Nathan said that he never trusted Kenny, but since he was a longtime family friend of Lori's and Kenny had been around long before Nathan came into the picture, he kept his opinion to himself. Nathan told the outlet that Kenny had personally reached out to Lori's daughters while she was missing and even called Nathan himself. Nathan said that when he answered Kenny's phone call, chills went down his spine. Kenny told Nathan that he was going to do everything he could to find Lori. While Nathan was still trying to get home, flying country to country from state to state to get back to Georgia, he got another devastating phone call. He tells WTOC that he answered the phone only to hear, Sergeant Arrowood, we have terribly saddening news. Your spouse's remains have been found. I don't think anyone can imagine getting that phone call, and I've reached out to some contacts about why it was done via the phone, and it looks like it falls under some judgment gray area. Generally, death notifications are done in person, but Nathan was flying home from being deployed, and before he could get home, they had not only found his missing wife, but she had been murdered, and someone had been arrested for it, and it was someone they knew. 
It was going to be all over the news. If I had to guess, they made the judgment based on the fact that they wanted to be able to inform him before the media or anyone else did. Regardless, it's unimaginable to think about not only having to process the murder of your wife, but having to do it alone while you catch flights to try and get home to her. After Nathan shared how he came to find out about his wife's murder, he gave some insight into what happened that no one else knew yet. Nathan told WTOC that there was blood all over the walls, which shocked everyone. Lori's daughter hadn't reported her missing until the following morning, and both of her daughters had been living in the house until the GBI came in Tuesday night. Had Kenny tried to clean up the house, with the GBI able to use tools like Luminol to show what had really happened while her daughter was at work? Not only did Nathan say that there was blood all over the walls, but he told the outlet that there was none on the carpet, as if it had been covered by something. He told WTOC that the way Lori was killed, which hadn't been shared yet, was cold-blooded. On October 5th, 2010, Lori Arrowwood was laid to rest, and at her funeral, her husband sang the song, Don't Think I Can't Love You. The examiner spoke to Lori's friend Christine, who said, Kenny, in my book, is a coward and a sick person. She said that she didn't like him from the day she met him and that he'd always given her the chills when he watched them ride their horses. She told the outlet that her heart also goes out to Shelly, Kenny's wife, as well, saying not only is her best friend dead, her husband is responsible for it. And I think this is such an important thing to talk about. So often the killer's family is kind of grouped in with the killer, like maybe they should have known or there's suspicion that maybe they were in on it, but Shelly didn't know anything. Kenny was a monster and he was good at pretending not to be one. Shelly and Lori were best friends, and Lori's murder wrecked her on so many different levels. A member of Web Sleuths posted that the Friday prior to Lori's funeral, Shelly had visited Kenny in jail and flat out asked him what he did to Lori, to which he allegedly responded with, I don't remember. The poster claims that Shelly then lost it and had to be carried out of the jail. While all of this was happening, the search for Gail was in full force, but on October 6th, with nothing found, they called it off. However, WTOC reports that they were still actively looking for connections between the two cases. On March 28th of 2011, Kenny went to court and pled not guilty, so it sounded like this was about to go to trial. While Lori's family waited for what seemed like an endless amount of time for justice, WSAV reports that her youngest daughter withdrew from college courses and moved in with her aunt, Lori's sister. She wanted to be able to help clear some land to make room for her mother's horse that she had loved with all her heart. This was her remaining link to the bond with her mother, and according to the outlet, the current boarding situation for Lori's horse wasn't going to last much longer and getting rid of the horse was not an option. Nine months after pleading not guilty, the state announced that they'd be seeking the death penalty for Kenny, and it only took another eight months for him to realize that Kenny was afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of inflicting it, but he was so afraid of receiving it that he decided to change his plea to not guilty so long as his sentencing avoided it. Kenny pled guilty, telling the courts that he had gotten into an argument with Lori and accidentally strangled her. So he then dragged her into the woods and covered her body with leaves. 
That confession makes absolutely no sense. How do you accidentally strangle someone to death? It takes several minutes to do this. Losing consciousness can happen extremely quickly when blood and oxygen is cut off from the brain, but to cause death from strangulation takes minutes of continued pressure. And what about the blood on the walls that Nathan talked about? Strangulation doesn't get blood all over the walls. And what about that phone call from her friend earlier that day when they just made plans to go to the bank, but 10 minutes later, Lori couldn't answer the door and it sounded like she'd been crying? Was Kenny in the house when her friend got there? Why was her purse taken? Why was her phone taken? And where were they now? His confession seemed like a pocket full of bullshit, but regardless, he was able to avoid the death penalty with it. And from what I can tell, Lori's family was less than thrilled with the deal. In the years following his sentence, police would occasionally remove him from the cement box he called home and question him about Gail. And every single time they interviewed him, he said he knew nothing. Until 2019. In 2019, law enforcement offered Kenny another deal. They wouldn't prosecute him for Gail's murder so long as he told them what he did and where they could find her. So, Kenny finally caved. According to WTOC, he told the GBI that he had strangled Gail to death while trying to sexually assault her. Strangulation was the exact same way he had killed Lori, and with so many questions still unanswered about her murder, this only furthered them. Kenny reportedly gave a roundabout location of where they could find Gail's body, but they were never able to find her. However, according to the outlet, based on evidence in comparison to his confession, they believe him. In 2019, after the confession, 12 years after Gail went missing, a memorial service was finally held in her honor. The police and the families have kept a lot of the details in Lori's and Gail's cases close to the vest, and there are still so many unknowns. I found some common rumors and blog posts around the internet that make Gail and Lori's murders seem even more similar than they already are, but without a credible source to substantiate them, I decided to leave them out of the episode. These two cases came with so many victims— Lori, Lori's husband and daughters, Lori's friends and family, and Shelly who lost her best friends at the hand of her husband, and a 14-year-old boy who has to grow up knowing what his father did. Gail, her friends, and her family who never gave up looking for her and seeking justice. Kenny was a monster hiding in plain sight, and now he's a monster that will spend the rest of his life being ordered around by correctional officers doing the same job he had had for 14 years before he was finally caught. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Lori's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. 
If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 